Well, good morning. And you know, that song right there was chosen on purpose because today we are looking at how much the Father really loves us. That's the whole point, I think, of the last message that we'll look at in the book of Jonah. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Jonah chapter 4. And uh, we're going to finish off this uh, look at um, the book of Jonah as we've been in over the last four or five weeks. You know, last week we spent our time in chapter 4 in the first few verses. And uh, what we were looking at was the characteristics of who God is and how God reveals himself to us through the scripture. And I wondered all week long if I had fully gained that depth of understanding into the character of God, and I just don't think I have. I don't know about you, but as I thought about that, I thought about how uh, really it's just impossible to fully wrap my mind around Uh, God and try to contain him and what I know about him. And so the best I can do is take what he reveals in the scripture, what he's revealed in the person of Christ and, and just affirm those things and thank God for those things. And, and I hope that you spend a little time thinking about that this week as well. You remember last week we learned those five characteristics of who God said that he was. He said, I'm gracious compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and I'm one who relents on sending disaster. I often uh, change my mind about sending disaster, he says, on people. And you remember Jonah was frustrated by that, but we're encouraged by it because really as we look at that, we see that God's grace abounds in our lives every day. We get to see God's grace in our lives. And I, I do think that if I could sum up really the message of Jonah is not about the fish. You know, we've talked about that. It's really about the mercy of God. It's about the mercy of God in Jonah's life. It's about the mercy of God over the people of Nineveh's lives. And and it's really about the mercy of God in our lives that we just, we never get what we deserve from the Lord. He's so gracious to us. And if that doesn't make you stop and just ponder that for a minute uh, today, I I don't want you just to run by that. I, I think it's worth us stopping and thanking the Lord for that, that his mercy abounds, his grace abounds towards us. As we conclude our our look at uh, Jonah today, we'll be in chapter four, and let's just read verse four all the way to the end of the chapter. We, We Remember, we left and Jonah was angry, and so we're picking up in verse four with the Lord. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Now you remember, he's waiting on it to be obliterated, totally destroyed. And then it says, the Lord appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant and when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right. He replied, I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared at night. It perished in a night. So may I not care more about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left hand as well as many animals. Do you remember, as we looked at last week, Jonah was having a little bit of a temper tantrum, and we've called this whole series the same boat, and and the reason we've called it that is because you're like that, I'm like that, we throw those things from time to time, we get angry with the Lord, he was angry with the Lord, 
And it said that he was displeased and that he was furious. He was seething with the anger. It was starting to, to just be burning him up from the inside out. And I gotta be honest, as we re read this passage of scripture and as I studied it this week, I was reminded that there's a lot about the Lord I think I understand. There's a lot about the Lord I may never understand. But there are a few things from the scripture after reading through it a few times I'm certain that I understand, and we see one of those right here, and I don't want you to miss this this morning because it's really important. Uh, it's never good when God asks you a question. It's never good. If God comes to you and asks you a question, it's never a good thing. It's almost like if you had a sibling growing up, and you started kind of bickering with the sibling and, and then you start fighting with the sibling and, and then maybe you're throwing stuff at each other or whatever you used to do with your brothers or sisters and a parent says, hey, what are you doing? They already know. They're just asking to see if you'll fess up, right? I mean, I mean, that's how it is. They're not asking because they don't know. They're asking because you're caught. They're asking because you're, you're, you're stuck. You're, you're absolutely stuck in, in, in the parental view and there's no way out of it. And, and that's exactly what happens here in verse four. We already know that Jonah's displeased and furious and God says, is it right for you to be angry? Not a good question. Not a good question at all. In fact, if you or I were hanging out with Jonah and we're sitting in his little shed that he made for himself to watch Nineveh hopefully be obliterated in his mind, and God comes and we hear this, uh, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? That's when you're like, ooh, I gotta get away from here. It's time for me to, to leave. It's about to get spicy. Because when God asks questions, it's not like he doesn't know the answer. It's important because uh, it's, it's one of those things that God does sometimes to arrest our attention. It's one of those things that God does sometimes to show us maybe the, the lunacy of whatever we're thinking or whatever we've been spouting off. But when God starts asking questions in the scripture, it's really interesting. Just to prove the point, if I could, maybe we could go throughout the scriptures for just a moment and look at some of those great questions that God has asked people. Do you remember in the book of Genesis, it records that God created Adam and Eve and they're living in the garden and they sin. And do you remember this question? It said, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called out to the man and said, where are you. Now, I don't know if this has ever occurred to you. God's never lost his keys. He's never lost a book, never misplaced a planet. He surely has never lost a person he's created. When he says, where are you? What's he saying? <laughs> You're busted, right? The, the, the gig is up. It, the ruse is over. You can't hide anymore. Where are you? When, when God asks this, it's a penetrating question because he knows exactly where they are. This is something God did all the time. He came and he walked with them. He knows where they are. Where are you? What are you doing? The book of Job records one of the worst Q&A sessions that you have ever read in your life. In fact, it's, it, it's so many questions and so few answers, it's a little bit overwhelming. Do you remember that Job was frustrated because he's caught up in a cosmic drama of which he doesn't understand fully and his friends don't understand what's going on. And after a while, like we, I mean, honestly, when you read the book of Job, you're kind of reading it going, I mean, I understand how he feels. 
He's got boils all over his body. I mean, there's this, there's this point where he's taking pottery and broken pottery and, and scraping these sores on his arms. I mean, it's gross, right? It, it's a difficult thing that he's in. And his wife, I mean, his good old wife, why don't you just curse God and die? Get it over with. I mean, that's her response. His friends are all telling him all the things he's done wrong and, and none of them are right in their assessment of what's going on. And Job really starts to complain about these things. He, he's frustrated with it. And I just remind all of us, uh, we're often frustrated with what we don't understand, but Isaiah 55, God clearly tells us his ways are not our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. Why? Because he's different than us. The, the things that he sees, the things that he does, they're different than what we do. He operates on a different plane than we do. His intellect is bigger than ours. So Job couldn't possibly see all that was going on. And he's been running the mouth. He's frustrated. And in chapter 38 of Job, the Lord answered Job from a whirlwind. And he said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Verse two of that chapter has to be one of the scariest verses. Who is this? who darkens my counsel with ignorant words. Who is this? Now, now, it's interesting because God says, you get ready to answer me like a man. Can you imagine that? Stand up here and answer me like a man. You, you think you know everything. You think you've got it all figured out. Come up here and we're gonna have a conversation. Now, what, what happens? We don't have time for it, but all of chapter 38 and 39 is question after question after question after question. And finally, Job says, I put my hand over my mouth, I have nothing to say. Because there's no answer. All you could say is, I have been blabbering on at the mouth and I don't know anything. I remember a season of my life where I was very, very frustrated with some goings on in my life and had expressed that not only to my wife but to some of my extended family and, and basically just kind of frustrated with with what I felt like was one direction the Lord was taking me and then all of a sudden we were right back at, at the starting point all over again. I mean, I was, I'd had enough. I was frustrated. We were out of town visiting my sweet aunt and uh, some of her family and we decided we were gonna walk across the street to the, to the First Baptist Church there and, and go to church and the pastor opened up the Bible to Ecclesiastes and he started preaching on guard your steps when you enter the house of the Lord. Don't blab on at the mouth. Oops. You ever get that way? Do you ever think God's not being fair? You ever think God doesn't know what he's doing? Do you ever feel like God's giving you a fair deal? Well, I tell you, we don't understand all that God's doing. We, we don't have the mind of God. And Jonah surely didn't have the mind of God. And, and the questions reveal that. And Job didn't have it. But it's not just in the Old Testament. The New Testament records it for us as well. There's a question that changes the course of one man's entire life and actually changed the course of all of Christendom forever. You may remember the story, the Apostle Paul traveling on the road to Damascus 
He's going there with letters in his hand from the high priest so that he can persecute the church. And in fact, some of the translations say he was ravaging the church. People were being killed. Uh, they were being imprisoned because he saw this, this new way, the Christianity of, of Jesus Christ as a threat to all of Judaism. And, and he's traveling on the road. And do you remember this from Acts chapter nine? As he was traveling in near Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How do you want to answer that question? Uh, well, Lord, <clears throat> I don't know. I thought I was doing the right thing. No, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That question changed his life forever. He, he, he goes on a journey to walk with the Lord. He begins serving the Lord. He writes the majority of what we have in the New Testament uh, in terms of the number of, of letters and epistles. He becomes prolific in reaching the Gentile world of which we are a part of. And what happens is that with one question, God changed the course of his life. Well, Jonah's question left him a little dumbfounded, I guess, because he didn't even bother to try to answer the question. There's nothing he can say. So what did he do? He decides to go and just sit outside the city and hope that God is going to burn this thing to the ground. I want it to go, Lord. And it's amazing what happens because as he does this, verse five says he leaves and he finds a place east of it, made himself a shelter, sat in the shade to see what would happen. And the Lord God appoints a plant to give him some shade. It grows over Jonah, provides shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. But he was greatly pleased with the plant. And when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant as it withered or and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching heat, uh, a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. And he even said, it's better for me to die than to live. If Jonah thought things were about to get better for him, they were about to get worse you know, we've seen Jonah go through a storm to get his attention, God trying to get his attention. And that's one of those things where there's no doubt what God's doing, right? I mean, God, God has this storm appointed. You remember as we talked about it, it said God threw the sea at them, threw the wind at them so that they couldn't make progress. And they, they throw Jonah overboard. And Jonah finds himself there, trapped in the, the belly of this great fish, this beast. God has his attention, you think, because he goes and preaches. But we learn that his heart hasn't changed. And so God, in all of his subtlety, it's not a storm this time, it's a plant. It's just a little plant. How nice the little plant is. Uh, Jonah thought that he was gonna get a, a little bit better for uh, as this plant grew over him. It was gonna help him be shaded. And, and what we see is that, that God, in trying to get his attention, literally turns up the heat. Something that Jonah was taking pleasure in, literally destroyed. I don't know about you, but as I read this, I read that Jonah had built this place for him and that God had made this plant for him to rescue him from his trouble. What trouble? The heat. Scorching. He's dehydrating. He's dying. And he gets so miserable that he just says, I just, I'm ready to give up. I'm, I'm ready to be done. God's trying to teach him a lesson. He's trying to teach 
us a lesson. And oftentimes in our lives, it takes not just the storm of life, it takes not just God coming in and moving in in our lives through those, those big massive outward circumstances, it's the subtlety of, of how great God is. God's mercy towards Jonah was to make a plant and teach him an object lesson for it. Could God be teaching you and I some of those things today? Could it just be through the subtlety of a situation? The subtlety of a circumstance? The subtlety of, of what he's doing where he's just saying, I, I, I don't see your heart changing. I, I fully don't see you, you following after me and, and, and we, don't, we don't get it. That plant died and Jonah got another question in verse nine, didn't he? Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. God's asking him again, is it right for, for you to be angry? And he doesn't answer. And now is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah still hasn't grasped it. He's still angry. But verse 10, God says something that is amazing. You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. The point here that God's trying to get him to see is you care about things you had no investment in more than you care about the things that I have invested in. Now, I don't know about you, but that could be a, a really interesting question if we all had to answer it. Do you care about things that you really have little investment in more than you care about the things that God has great investment in? What verse 10 is really trying to tell us is that that God loves us. And, and maybe the question for us is, do we grasp that? Do we really grasp the great love that God has for us? And, and I should make a distinction here. I'm not trying to, to separate us between those who are saved and those who are lost, lost. God cares about people whom he has created. It's not a distinction between believers and unbelievers. God loves them. He, he wants us to see that. Jonah was missing it. God thought, I'm part of your chosen race. I'm part of the people that you have called unto yourself. I know that you love me, but why would you love these folks? Why could you possibly love them? I think if we could truly understand the question of how much God loves us, if we, could, if we could just articulate that, if we could articulate how much God loves people, it would probably change our interactions with people. Because you see, Jonah's viewpoint of life and, and this group of people was shaped by how he had, had been uh, living in this experience. And your, your life is shaped by experience and mine is too. And, and, and we, shouldn't, we shouldn't act like it isn't. I mean, for instance, uh, Jonah's life was shaped by his nationality. Yours is too. Your life might even be shaped uh, down to the minutia of the state that you've grown up in. You know, if, if, if maybe you even grew up outside the United States, but your country has states or, or regions. I mean, you're, you're shaped by those things. It's not just your accent. It's your beliefs. It's not just what you think about things, it's how you interact with things. Your life can also be shaped by your faith background that you have or 
shaped by your family and you've been shaped by the schools that you've attended and, and the friends that you've had throughout your lifetime. All those things shape us into who we are, but we're also shaped by negative things that happen to us, aren't we? We're, we're shaped by those things that aren't positive experiences, maybe even negative experiences, and it's possible that, that you've been shaped by a difficult circumstance. Maybe something in your life has, has really thrown itself against you and you've been shaped by that. You, you, it's part of who you are. Maybe uh, if you're like I am, I've watched circumstances shape, for instance, my grandparents. My grandparents lived through the Great Depression and a world war. It shaped them. It changed how they viewed things. It, It changed forever my grandfather's relationship with a bank. Seeing what happened in, in the great, it, it, it gave him pause every time he had to deal with a bank after that. He was nervous about it. Why? Experience had taught him that you can't trust this. It's, it's something that you can't just place your money in haphazardly. We, we can be shaped by those things. And the question I want to ask you is, are you allowing your circumstances to shape your view of the world more than you're allowing what God says about the world to shape your view? Because for us, uh, it's easy to be just like Jonah. Jonah had been shaped by feelings that he had against the Assyrians and, and the people from Nineveh. And, and he had right to, to probably feel this way towards them because his life had been made inextricably harder because of how he had been treated by the Assyrians. His nation had been ravaged by the Assyrians. In fact, one of the things that we, we know about the Assyrians is that they were brutal in how they conquered people. They, they would go in and conquer a, a nation and they would decimate it. They'd leave it in ruins and then they would drag off the best and the brightest and leave people with no skills, no education back in the land so that that nation could never rebuilt to, uh, be rebuilt to its glory again. They were brutal with their enemies. They were murderous. They were harsh. And if you think about it, that would shape how you viewed this group of people. I imagine for a moment, maybe. Just imagine what it would be like to think about the person in your life that's wounded you the most and being told by God, go share the gospel with them. That's Jonah's lot right now. Imagine what he must have felt like. Uh, we, we, we all kind of do this, don't we? Uh, we? We find ourselves in these things where where we don't want to do it. I, I don't want to. I don't want to deal with that group of people. I don't want to deal with that person. I don't want to have to. I don't want to have to fool with them. And yet, what does the scripture say? Jesus taught us that if we love our enemies, so what? I mean, if we love those who love us, so what? We're to love our enemies. That's the mark of our lives. I've thought about that a lot this week. Is my friends who have been in Ukraine have just been on my mind again. I mean, it just it's you know like we're not hearing as much about that in the news, but that conflict hasn't ended. Imagine being told, love your enemies. Love the people that are decimating your country. The gospel is for them as well. It's not a theoretical question for them. It's a real question for them. Jonah was not far away, I think, from where we live. That's this whole idea of it's the same boat. We naturally operate in the same way. We start with ourselves and we like to move outward and we see things from our perspective nationally. We see things from our political perspective, which by the way is just as dangerous. No, no party has a co-op on Jesus. 
They don't. It doesn't work that way. So when we start invoking those things, it gets really, really sporty, doesn't it? It gets interesting. We see it from our perspective. We, we see things from the perspective of our socioeconomic status. We, we see it from the perspective of our race, from our friends. And, and the reason we do that is it's a result of sin. Think about this for a second. What does sin do? It separates. So sin separates me from God, but sin also does its best to separate me from other people. That, that's what happens. Uh, I live in relationship with people long enough and there's no way you won't find yourself in relational turmoil. I mean, it's just, it's just the way that it is. The only way for you to be happy, I think, relationally is to never have any. I mean, like, you're always going to have these moments in your life where it, it's friction and it rubs the wrong way and it, it feels, oh, that, that didn't feel good. Or whatever. But what does that mean for us as believers? Is the answer to gather the people that are like me the people that believe my, like me and create our big own echo chamber and just hang out with those people, I don't think that's the answer. That's not going into all the world. That's staying with what makes me comfortable. And I love being comfortable. Like attracts like and sin separates us. And here's the thing. I'm just like Jonah and so are you. We love to live this way. Feel safe feels like we don't have to risk much. It feels like we don't have to have uncomfortable conversations with people. Do you like uncomfortable conversations? I hate them. I despise them. Ooh, I don't want to talk about that. This feels weird. I don't know how, I don't know if I like how this makes me feel right now. And we want to recoil and, and shrink back a little bit. And yet the gospel is compelling us to move forward. The gospel is compelling us to go further because if we had God's perspective, we would change. We would, we would see the change in our lives because God moves towards the lost even as they run away from him. We like to write people off. No hope for them. That person that hurt me, I'm done with them. Never fool with them again. Is that really the answer? Is that the answer to the lost world? Is, is, that, is that how we're to interact with them? Is, is that what we do? Or should we be pursuing the lost and, and chasing them with the gospel and telling them that there's a God that has loved them? God pursues, he loves. And the scripture says it this way, he demonstrated his mercy toward us every day, time and time again, wanting us to be reconciled to him. Listen to Romans 5, 8. God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He moved towards us. He moved towards the lost. And why did he do it? It's because he created all of this. It's not just that he created those who are in Christ. He created all of us. He loves us. How much? That while we were running away, he was pursuing us. His love wasn't conditional towards us. It wasn't dependent on where we lived or what race we were born into. Christ died for us. I want you to see this because it's important for us to look at this. Uh, there's this big city that God's talking about. And, and verse 11 uh, says something that, that, that's really important for us. It says, so I may not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. Now, the 120,000 
could just be that there are 120,000 people who are ignorant of the things of God. But I want you to think about it this way too because I think it's a valid point. Some commentators argue that this is about children that are in the city who can't distinguish between their right and their left hand yet. They're not of age. And Jonah's saying, all of them, we don't need any of them. And God's saying, but, but what about those who are, who are innocent before me? They're, they're not at the age of, of accountability, maybe, as you want to think about it like that. They, they don't understand yet. They're right in their left hand. And then he says, and, and you don't even care about the animals. Should I not care about the animals? It's pretty incredible. Do you think that God cares about animals? Now, please don't take this as proof text for your animal being in heaven with you when you get there. That's going to be a jump. Animals don't have souls. It doesn't mean God doesn't care about it. Do you think God cares about creation? Do you, do you think that the world should be in, in control of, of what it means to be a good citizen of the earth? Do you, or do you think Christians should be leading the charge on that? I mean, if God created it and we're stewards of it and we have dominion over it, as believers, don't you think we should be leading that charge? Don't you think that, that, that we should be there? We should be the ones having really good conversations about what it means to steward the resources of the earth because God cares about it. He created it. Now, and I want you to see this because this happens in Jonah's life. It happens in ours too. When you don't have an investment in something, you often see it as throwaway. It's not your problem. If you break something that isn't yours, that hasn't been bought with your hard-earned money, I mean, so what? Toss that thing. But it's different, isn't it? If you've had an investment of your time, energy, and resources to be able to work and get a little bit of money and be able to go buy something or create something or work at something, it changes how you view it. And that's what God is saying. God has a different perspective because people aren't a lost cause. People aren't throwaway to the Lord. People aren't things to be set aside to the Lord. He's created them. That's why as a church of the living Lord Jesus Christ, we're so passionate about right to life issues for all age groups. It's important for us because God created this. It's not ours to determine if it should be thrown away. It's important. Don't miss that. I think I hope more than anything for all of us that God would allow us to see things from his perspective and that the scales of the world would fall from our eyes and that we would see with 2020 perfect vision what God's trying to accomplish in the world and how much he loves people. Because if we're going to be people who are like God, we need to love people too. Maybe that would change things for you. Maybe it would change uh, the way you view traffic in Nashville, for instance. Maybe it would change it because you wouldn't just be frustrated all the time. You would see people sitting in every one of those cars. Not at adversaries who need to be cut off so that you can merge out of your lane to where you need to be, but you would see people who God loves, people who Christ died for, people who have maybe moved here from places where, where the gospel wasn't as prevalent and they're here for a reason right now. And instead of being angry that they're all moving here and, and frustrated that people are moving, we would say, Lord, thank you for the opportunity for us to interact with people from all over the world, all over the country. And we're excited to see how you're going to do something great in the city. Thank you, Lord. We know you love people. Maybe it would change your interactions with people. It might change the, that person that, that's gonna serve you today at lunch or, 
or next week when you're, when you're in the store trying to buy something and you wouldn't see them as, as just somebody to do something for you, but you would see that they're a person who God created, who God loves, who Jesus died for. So, so that you could see with God's perspective, it would change that interaction. Maybe it would put you on your best behavior and, and you wouldn't act like a jerk, right? You know, you wouldn't just say like, this interaction is a throwaway interaction. It doesn't matter. I'm never gonna see them again. I can be as, as rude or as demanding as I wanna be. no it would change me to see that maybe the most important thing that I was gonna do that day wasn't buy the shirt I was gonna buy, but maybe interact with a person who was gonna sell me the shirt because God loved them. He is an investment in them. He's made them, he's created them. It would make us gracious to people who have a different background than we do. We would give them room to work out maybe some of their, their thoughts and feelings and be a, a sounding board. And, and we would stop seeing people as enemies, but opportunities, opportunities to share the gospel, opportunities that we can let people meet our Savior so that they would know him and, and be in relationship with him. My, my prayer for our church is that we would pursue the lost over our objections. Jonah couldn't get there. He was happy after he got out of the belly of the fish to go and deliver the message, but he wanted the result to be the same. I think I'm concerned that in the world that we live in is it continually works to divide us. Uh, we are sometimes maybe not as... Uh, up to speed on the wiles of the devil as we would like to be. So we pick a cable news station, divides us. We pick a side of an issue, divides us. And we become angry and adamant and, 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 and we feel like that the answer is, is to go to people like that, as if that, I mean, that's really enticing to people, I'm sure. While I fight you, let me tell you that Jesus loves you. Mm, maybe. I know a lot of Christians who love the passage where Jesus grabbed the whip and started beating people out of the temple. That makes them feel strong. I was like, one time, man, once. The rest of the gospels, what did we see? He was patient. He was long-suffering. He let people come to him with objections and he wasn't trying to force them. Do you remember the story of Nicodemus? I love that story. Nicodemus is a multi-year project with Jesus. Some of you, like me, were multi-year projects with Jesus. Some of you, the first time you heard the gospel, it arrested your heart and you were in. But for some of us, it took a long time. And too often, we just write people off as if they're, they're not worth our time anymore. I've shared Christ with them twice. We don't need to fool with them anymore. Really? Is that the answer? We need to move past our objections, past the way that we might feel about it and, and give people space for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives and, and an open door for them to always come back and, and, and hear more about the Savior because God has loved them. Maybe our heart would be moved by the great love of God so that as we see people, we would see 
that their greatest need is not more money or more stuff or more education. It's more of Jesus. More understanding of a Savior and a Father who has loved them. And I want to ask you this question. Have you received the love of Christ today in such a way that it's changed your life? And what I mean by that is not do you know about Jesus. I don't mean to, have you ever heard his name or are you born into a Christian nation? I don't, that's not what I mean. What I mean, have, have you ever had a moment in your life where you surrendered your life and Christ became your hope of salvation? Where you asked him to forgive you of your sins and your relationship with God the Father was restored. Has that happened in your life? Because God has been pursuing you. He loves you with an everlasting love. And if you've never given your life to Christ, our great hope and prayer this morning is that you would. And to our church and those who claim the name of Christ, I think we have to answer the question, are we going to be faithful to our calling? Because our calling wasn't to come and hide away and stay with people who look like us, act like us, think like us, vote like us. Whatever. That wasn't the calling. The calling was to go into the world where all of those things are up for grabs, where it's a mess all the time. And to show the world that the love of Christ compelled us to go, but the love of Christ has overwhelmed us because we want them to know it too. It's a great question for us to answer as we're about to go into a new school year, a new church year, we're starting. and This is promotion Sunday for our life groups. A great question for us to answer as we're about to go into our global focus season of life. Do you love people? Do you express that love to them? Do they see the gospel saturating your life and moving towards them? Or do they just see somebody who is real proud of what they believe and stays in their own little bubble? That doesn't help the, the Great Commission. That doesn't help the cause of Christ. Now I'm preaching to myself right now. Because I like what I like. I like being comfortable. But the calling was one to take up the cross and come and die, not to sit around in comfort. And as a church, we must constantly answer that, that calling over our lives. To know that God loves people so much that he sent his son to die for them. Heavenly Father, we're reminded this morning of the great love that you have for us. And Father, as we come to this moment in our lives, we just want to pause and pray, Father, that anyone who doesn't know you today would give their life to you. And as a church, we pause and pray that you would change our hearts and make them like yours. Father, would you allow us to see from your perspective the great things that you're doing let us see people as the greatest resource you ever created, Lord. Let us see the world through your eyes. And we ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.